0: but anybody can ask an internal version of ChatGPT or GPT-4, LLM, whatever you want, Um, can ask for the the same question, whether he's the CEO or the mailbox, the the mailroom guy, and get the same data. So now you have AI grabbing all this data, munging it, and now exposing that data to the world, to, to all the internal employees. So there's gotta be some kind of guidance about who's asking the question.
1: Welcome to the Cyber Ranch podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford, president and CISO at Alan Alford Consulting. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch podcast. That's John Checo, a.k.a. Checo. Who is overdue for being on the show, I freely admit. Uh, John is a presence on LinkedIn and in our industry. He's the author of Zero Trust, From Aspirational to Overdue. He's also involved, as you can imagine, in many other things, uh, various advisory roles, ISSA roles, InfraGuard roles. He's been resident CISO at Proofpoint, for example, senior vice president at Bank of America. Uh, He's also a fire instructor. Uh, but I asked John to the show specifically not to talk about fire instruction, but to talk about what he calls the misfits of zero trust. John, thank you so much for making it out to the ranch. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. All right. Without revealing any secrets, we never give away secrets on this show that might compromise who we work for or who we have worked for in the past. But can you talk a little bit about your experience investigating uh, the, the zero trust model for a large organization?
0: Yeah. So uh, I was um, uh, working for a large Money to firm and um building up their zero trust architecture. Of course, that involves a lot of uh, research and, and figuring out how uh, such a large infrastructure can work. And you know, we um we found a lot of interesting things. Uh there to me three fundamental takeaways for such a large organization. Number one, executive buy-in. It took me two years to get a five-year plan in place. Um And executive buy in you know they 'll say yes to a multi year project until the next year rolls around, so you have to kind of uh, ask for it to be an escrow so that way you can uh, get your funding year over year um, I like to say when we are redesigning any security infrastructure or any network infrastructure, design for capabilities, if we are not design if we're designing for solutions or some new bright shiny object that we heard about um it 's hard to replace, but if we define it as capabilities and we find solutions that do partial capabilities here and there we can piece together uh, a good security
1: program i like it when the change hits you're flexing with where you still need to be going and everyone still has the eye on the right target you might need to make an adjustment but we're all headed the same way
0: yeah yeah i uh, just to digress a little bit one of the tools i love to use for that whole uh, designing for capabilities is the cyber defense matrix if uh, yes you know sunil, sunil you, you. And, uh, you know, uh, Sunil and I work together at, at, at uh, one of these financial firms. Um, and, you know, it's a great way of mapping a lot of different things, your vendor coverage, your security coverage, your, your spin. Um, so I like, I like using that to uh, define my zero trust architecture.
1: Uh, I love it. Quick, quick aside, Sunil actually uh, did a conference on the cyber defense matrix and did it here in Dallas-Fort Worth. So I got to attend.
0: Oh, cool, cool. He's a very engaging speaker. Definitely. Yes, he is. Um, uh, to get back on track, the uh, the third thing, and this is actually probably one of the more uh, nuanced items, is you have to look at your policies, how they're written. Um, we had to refactor our policies to be less prescriptive and more context aware. So, uh, you know, the way you, you implement a control in zero trust might be uh, different than you implement control with a typical uh, technology. And if your policies are too prescriptive, uh, you'll never reach that that policy. The downside of that is if you start developing other policies specific for the zero trust, you have two sets of policies that have the same objective. Auditors don't like to see that. Auditors like the like to have simple. So you have to you have a problem of working through um, this this policies. And one of the areas I like to look at is let's start refactoring the policies before we get into the technology. Before we get into the, the design of or our infrastructure, because that'll help us uh, guide the way.
1: I like it. I like it. So, all right. Um, Education explanation examples, right? Like not prescriptive, but just here's where we're headed. Here's how we can get there. Here's an idea of, of the target, but we're not going to tell you you shall install this and run this and so sign up for this and delete that. Like you're you're avoiding that level of prescription and sort of keeping it goal oriented with those policies. Is that kind of Go- the
0: gist of it? So it's goal oriented. And the, the nice thing about that is when you start redoing policies for goal oriented uh, uh, um, security, you'll find that businesses are more apt to accept those policies because they have control over how they can implement it. Uh, I... I had the saying that it's easy to teach a business person security than to teach a security person the nuances of a business.
1: Yes, yes. If it's done right, that is a true statement, right? Like, and it all depends on what you're defining as security. And if security is a goal of, you know, business alignment and, and risk reduction from a business perspective, yeah, they're going to get security all day long. Oh, yeah. Um, but trying to convince your, your SOC analysts that, uh, you know, sometimes we're not going to call that a threat or a problem, you know, like <laughs> that's a harder challenge, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So you talked about this concept of the misfits of zero trust, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about that.
0: Yeah, so everyone's talking about uh, zero trust in usually two different realms. It's usually micro segmentation or identity and access management. Um, and that's great for um, your customer facing applications and, and a lot of your internal applications. But there's a lot of business processes that you have to think about when it comes to security. And they're not typical, they're not applications, they're not systems, they're processes that include maybe a variety of systems. Um, and I... I look at this as second and third world dependencies. And these dependencies are things that maybe you've forgotten about when you, you're, you're implementing or rolling out that, that zero trust uh, infrastructure. Um, I'll give you some examples of you know tech debt. Uh, we, think, we think about, you know okay, we're gonna put this shiny new infrastructure and our tech debt is not going away, but that tech debt is really a hole in the infrastructure. So you could put the best policies and controls in place, but if you have tech debt, it doesn't matter.
1: Yeah, it's it's bad enough that a new rollout is is a acquiring debt, but the debt itself that you began with before you began the rollout was already problematic from the organizational goal of zero trust, right? In other words, tech debt becomes self-sabotage after a certain point.
0: Exactly. Wow, that's a great, that's, I like that phrase, self-sabotage. Um, the other idea around tech debt and, or, or gaps in the system is exception handling. Everybody asks for risk exceptions. Uh, Well, that defeats the purpose of the control in the first place. And again, if you have the business person having uh, the decision over how control is implemented, you shouldn't have exceptions.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Okay. That's, that's, and that's a heck of a nuance because that, you know, you hear about exception handling and you hear, you hear that phrase and you think immediately of two things one is business process and the other one is software development. Right. And, and I always think in terms of software development. Do you want your developers spending ninety percent of their time on exception handling, or ninety percent of their time on the doing of the doing, and ten percent on the exception handling? Right. The whole point of an exception is it should be an exception. If it's dominating the time, then you're doing it wrong. And I think that's a brilliant analogy for you know the the business piece. Right. Let them drive how, and you're going to throw far fewer exceptions. You, the last thing I want to be as a CISO is an adjudicator of um other people's interpretation of their business need. It's like. You know your business need better than I do, Mr. Leader of Fill in Department X, you know, name. Like, I don't, I'm not going to tell legal how to run legal. I'm not going to tell marketing how to run marketing. And if, and if they know their business better than we do, giving them goals, giving them guardrails and setting them loose is, is optimal versus prescriptive stuff that requires exception after exception after exception. Cause the other thing is too, like, think about, you know, I hate to pick on name brands. I, I, I try to avoid either praising or picking on name brands, but I'll, I'll go ahead and say Archer. <laughs> you know, I mean, how many times have you been in a big shop that was an Archer shop, and you go in and look at the backlog of exceptions, and you see the history of extended, uh, extended, 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 extended. We're looking at an eight-year-old exception that we just keep every three months extending, and some new vice president comes in and signs off on it, and nothing changes, and nothing evolves, and you make zero progress. That's not zero trust. That's zero progress.
0: So it's funny, when I was at, I uh, bet, Big financial firm. um, We had changed the exception process, uh, and it it was it was. I thought it was great. So the first time you ask for an exception to a business process or security control, um, you granted it for six months. um, As if you you go for if you have a time frame or time bounding on it, you go for a year. So if you have a mitigation plan in place, uh, if you don't have a mitigation plan in place, it's only six months, and then the next six months it has to get uh, signed off by one higher level. And then the next six months, one higher level. Good way to until, do it. Until it gets to the CISO and CISO is like, where's the mitigation plan for this? I'm not signing this, right? Get a
1: mitigation plan in place. Right, right, right. I love it. I love it. I've I've, I've seen it. I've seen too many organizations just drag that one out infinitely, ad infinitum. So, but, all
0: uh, right. You know, I was going to I tell another story. A great story I tell with exception handling is uh, we have uh, security awareness training. Don't open PDFs. Don't open up unsolicited emails. Um, and it, it's it's thrown out to the entire company. Everybody needs to follow this. Well, your recruiting department has to do that. That's their job, right? So, you know, again, this is a policy that's too prescriptive. If the policy says, you know, you know, secure your email or whatever the, the policy states, maybe their solution is uh, automatic browser isolation or document isolation for everything they open because their job requires them to open up unsolicited emails
1: right 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 no that's perfect that's a perfect example all right so you talk about also in this misfits idea that you've got indirect and convoluted issues you you kind of talk about sort of a you've dubbed it as second world and third world affectations um and i'm really curious to dive into that because that's that's a that's a metaphor and a model i haven't seen applied in cyber yet so i'm really curious like we'll start with second world affectations what the heck does that mean? What is that? We talked about tech debt. Is that one of those exception handling? Is that one of those?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So tech debt or second world affectations are basically your core operational tasks that kind of fall out of the, the zero trust scope because they're tasks they're not applications or systems. Right. So that's where uh, tech debt uh, kind of falls in because tech debt is part of your core operation, exception handling, um, third party, third party systems. Uh, we talk about third party risk management all the time, but again, once the data leaves your system, goes to their system. Where's zero trust? Where's that control?
1: So, but but it's inherent. But it's inherent. And so it's a second second order.
0: Yeah, and uh, the third order or third world affectations are more complex business processes that may involve two or more systems that work together.
1: Got it. Okay, so give me some examples there.
0: So uh, the biggest example, and this is going to probably irk a lot of people, is uh, artificial intelligence, right? And uh, machine learning and automation, and I, I like to talk about, um you know, these systems are great, but they usually run with service accounts. They usually run service accounts don't have MFA, service accounts don't have expiring passwords, and they're usually not monitored by the SOC because they're too noisy. And they usually have more entitlements than a regular person does. So again,
1: <laughs> the deadly as, trifecta.
0: As a hacker, I'm going to go and try and take over a service account. I'm not going to try and go after a user account, but. Uh, also there's this idea of automation is everywhere. And uh, when we think about machine learning and AI, I call it the automation sandwich because you have automation for gathering data on the front end. And then you have automation on the back end, um, basically uh, enforcing the decisions made or, or or building those decisions and pushing them out.
1: And in between is a giant, giant heaping mound of security risk, deli yeah. style.
0: Yeah. And, and it's not, it's not complicated. It's complex, right? Complex means is Pathways there that are hard to follow, but they 're there for a purpose where complicated is is just uh, spaghetti
1: yeah sure, sure, okay now you talked about also you, you and I had mentioned uh, in an earlier conversation multi partner processing. talk to me about that one
0: you know um, coming from the financial services industry uh, we're a unique industry in the fact that um, if we're dealing with uh, financial trades stock trades, um, my competitor might be my collaborator because to to settle a trade is 12 steps. So I may need acknowledgement, enrichment, confirmation, um, you know, validation, a counterparty, and all these things go reach out to my competitors who are also my collaborators. And uh, what happens here is that, okay, so bank number one or financial institution number one uses uh, IAM as their central point for zero trust. And, you know, bank number two uses uh, Microsay, right? They bought, you know, they've been sold on on these concepts um, and again, they're both partially correct. Then there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but what happens is as the data gets transferred or transactions occur between the two entities, there's a gap there.
1: Uh, there's a place for the bad guy to insert himself and exploit bidirectionally. inspect exploit. Yeah. You know, even exploit,
0: right. yeah. Um, so I, I think with these multi-partner relationships, we need as an industry, you say for financial services as an industry to get together and say, how are we going to secure a transaction? Again, this goes back to complexity. Transaction from, from end to end, from uh, Bank of America to J.P. Morgan to DTCC.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and you don't, you're, not, you're not necessarily saying we need uniformity in terms of, hey, everyone, we're all going to organize internally the same way. No, no, no. Just for the purpose of this interaction, this zone of overlap, let's agree to a standard there. And you can microseg all you want, and you can identity and access management all you want, and we'll do both or whatever it might be.
0: It might be as simple as uh, you know uh, an extra uh, an extra confirmation or an extra acknowledgement or an extra verification um, that happens on the on the data exchange.
1: Sure, but it's it's the ultimate story of co right? Like like that's you know like that's that's the challenge there. That's exactly what it is. You're you're up against. Uh, Bureaucracy and politics and, and those sorts of uh, adversaries trying to get something like that implemented versus a technical challenge, right? You're, you're, you're looking at intercompany, co- competitive company cooperation. That's, that's not an easy hill to charge up at full speed. Howdy, y'all. Alan Alford here to tell you about Alan Alford Consulting. After being a CISO five times, I decided to launch my own cybersecurity consulting practice. My cybersecurity career has spanned companies ranging from 5 to 50,000 employees with revenues ranging from 2 million on up to 10 billion. I have worked in the cybersecurity industry itself, telecommunications, manufacturing, education, legal, data services, defense contracting and for a number of SaaS providers as well. What I can do for your organization is to help you better manage, measure, report on and more importantly execute on your cybersecurity program. I have helped clients employ cybersecurity frameworks Conduct maturity assessments, develop board reports, and even to draft comprehensive three-year plans with budget and headcount projection to meet compliance and maturity goals. I can help you with anything from an assessment to comprehensive execution. I also offer retainer packages. Find out more at alanalford.com. That's A-L-L-A-N-A-L-F-O-R-D.com.
0: Again, it's it's a really complex thought process. Um, one of the last things I want to talk about uh, uh, with that third world affectations is something that is in every company development, development teams. Again, you have this group of folks who have access, who have uh, uh, system access, uh, data access. They have uh, usually admin access to the systems that they're testing with. And some uses, some use copies of production data, some use stale production data, some use uh, test data. But these systems are not. Zero trust is not being applied to these areas, and that becomes an issue because again, if I'm going to be, ins- be inserting myself in you know, solar winds, it's a perfect example there, right? If I'm going to be inserting myself, that's where I'm going to insert into the solar winds, the SolarWinds libraries. And yeah, getting.
1: yeah, yeah. No, that makes perfect sense, and it you know d- development is. Uh... I had a I had a guest on the show quite some time ago. We did a three BSOs on the show at the same time, and and one of the BSOs commented, um, working for I believe it was an insurance company or a, I forget what kind of company it was, but but his whole point was, it doesn't matter anymore what kind of company you work for. We are all technology companies now. Like, you know, like everyone has a development wing. I don't care what you do, what you offer. If you are B2B of any sort whatsoever or B2C of any sort whatsoever, the odds are somebody is developing something on your behalf so you can do the business you want to do. There is a technology component to every freaking business out there now. Right. So so if that's a maxim, if that's a truth, then we have to really, truly do a deep dive on that one you just pointed out because, you know, in a small shop, like you know, some of I I th- I think you know a little bit about my background. I've done very small. I've done very large. I've been all over the map. The small shops tend to have a tighter handle on their DevSecOps, on their SDLC, on their build environments, on their CI/CD, on whether or not you can use production data, etc. Think about every security questionnaire you've ever received. Every client will tell you you're not allowed to use production data in development. You know, and and we all say yeah, we don't do that. We don't do that. But to your point. Well, maybe stale data doesn't really count, or maybe, you know, it has to be more realistic, or da 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 And and you know, pseudonym I hate that word, pseudo pseudo pseudonymizing. Tokenizing,
0: tokenizing. There you go, tokenizing.
1: <laughs> but but just the idea that you can quasi randomize or quasi-obscure. You know, I I I taught teams early on, you know, in small shops. This this one works in small shops. It doesn't necessarily work in a bigger environment, but you know, take your production data, separate the number part from the word part from the city part, from the zip part, from the name part, from the first name, from the last name, and just re-whirly gig it all, you still have the same number of records, but no one record is referencing anything real anymore. You know, like like that kind of approach, right? Like there's tricks you can do that work great when you're small and only have one database to manage, but the bigger you get and the more you're, you know, I, I hate to say it, but the bigger any organization gets, the bigger its attack surface gets, right? Like, like, all productivity is ultimately more attack surface. I mean, that's just that's how <laughs> it is, right? And so the bigger you get, the harder this one becomes to really manage and deal with. And it it is a legit tech debt in its own right that I don't know if we acknowledge enough. We we pass, you know, third-party questionnaires back and forth to each other all the time. But I don't know that anyone's truly, truly gotten on top of this one from a zero trust perspective. I'm I am I'm, I'm buying your book and i'm going to start reading it this weekend because i really want to dig into this particular facet of it. i've had kelly shortridge on the show who's talked about chaos engineering in, in sdlc and 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 you know security chaos engineering. we've had some really great thoughts about being the one on the keyboard doing that, but but managing it from a very large company perspective is a whole other story. so i'm 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 buying a copy of your book this weekend. i appreciate S- that. Sorry for the aside. <laughs> Next no, question no. for you John Checo sure. is where do we go from here man? Well, you know, not everything is that Nicolas Cage, end of the world
0: scenario. Um, You know, I I think we just need to take a step back and understand, again, comes down to awareness, comes down to understanding all these affectations, right? You still have that focus of systems and applications and data, right? Um, And you need to definitely focus on that. But then you have to start doing threat modeling against all your business processes. And I'm, You know, uh, threat modeling was such a bad word, maybe 10 years ago, uh, but now I think it's part and parcel of everything we need to do. And and like you said, I think we need to start teaching business people to threat model their own work and and be able to say, you know, it's not threat modeling is not security. Threat modeling is risk. And, you know, threat modeling is business risk. So we have to kind of get people into that, that. Uh, mentality uh,
1: yep. to do that, and, and threat modeling historically we always think of as like an application-centric activity, or or at most a, a a web cluster activity. Like there may be some hardware components to it, but it's a it's a it's a technology proposition when we say threat modeling. That's what people think. And I'm actually I actually submitted a talk for RSA this year talking about threat modeling the entire business. That that business processes are the pipelines you need to be threat modeling, not data flow. Like it's not about this IP pipeline, you know, it's, it's, it's bigger than that.
0: And if you talk to anyone who designs uh, tabletop exercises, all they're doing is workflow threat modeling. That's how they come up with their injects and, and their storylines. So, uh, you know, they're the experts I think in that area.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, all right. You, you, you've talked to me before too, about eating the elephant one bite at a time. (laughs) B-Y-T-E. Talk to me about that one.
0: No, I mean it's just a matter of uh, you know once you have that you have that holistic view in place and understand where you need to go um I'd say look at um what we did to finance firm is we picked two small groups to test our zero trust uh capability design uh, One was a system that was mostly mainframes, so mainframes are not zero trust capable. and uh, what we did was we uh, we did micro segmentation around each functional cluster of mainframes and made that. That, peri- that perimeter, the zero trust asset, right? Um, and uh, we took another group that had a, uh, a consumer product that they that they built from a uh, consumer facing website all the way to backend databases and financial acts, uh, transactions. So they had a full stack and we uh, designed zero trust capabilities around that. And again, but these two small groups, we were able to find out what worked, what didn't work, what what, you know, how do we need to manage controls for each of these uh, systems, because it's not going to be the same, um, and uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, fortunately, I did not uh, stay with that firm to follow that. But there's a great guy who's running the zero trust architecture now, and he's kind of expanded that. So he says, "Okay, we took these two groups. Let's expand to a different group. Let's let's do more testing, and let's figure out what we need to do from a capability and from an object or a goal oriented system." Not from a technology system.
1: That's perfect, and you, and you adopt and pick up with each group. You you learn something, and adding the next one becomes a little easier. And pretty soon you're you're adjusting to the the great wealth of diversity that that any large organization is going to represent.
0: Yeah, zero trust is not going to be a across the board type of solution, right?
1: So prioritization of impact to the organization, right? Um, you're talking about current and potential impact, pre and post zero trust impact. What's what's kind of your What's kind of your thinking there?
0: So, uh, you know, what's the cost of doing nothing? Um, so, one of the ways we we were able to get a multi-year commitment was we were showing. And let will take a step back. So, 1960s, you have these DARPA uh, DARPANet, right? And uh, we're all communicating with each other. And someone we, we open it up to the public, to the universities, and people's like, oh man, people can steal my my research. And so they put these. So uh, and all these systems had the capability of being secure, but we were lazy and we said, ah, let's just put a firewall around it. Let's, let's just put a network yeah. segment around it. Yeah, we got lazy. I mean, zero trust is not new. Zero trust is basically telling us that we should have been doing this stuff all along. Role based access control, uh, least privilege, right? Uh, you know, asset based security. Um, so to go forward now, when we implemented firewalls, it was a great return on security investment. Right, small costs, or and then right, protecting a, a, the bulk of ninety percent of access controls. Um, but as we move on in, in in technology, every new solution we buy is fixing a minor issue or event or potential impact. So we're paying a lot of money to protect less and less, or protect more more granular things. So the return on security investment is is reaching zero. And the way we propose that, if we follow that hyperbolic curve. Um, we would reach zero by 2025. And so we said, that's where we said, okay, we have to start thinking differently. We have to start doing asset based uh, uh, controls, security controls, and uh, that using zero trust. And asset based means assets are people, processes, technology, right? So uh, when we start looking at it that way, we could say we built, we designed for capabilities. And the, the, the idea of designing for capabilities that you're paying for, a technology solution now that's just going to be replaced in three years, but the, but the design doesn't change. And uh, with that, uh, we're ba- basically reducing that impact. Okay. So that's the current and po- potential uh, post-Zero uh, Trust impact.
1: I, I like that. I like that. Okay, so, all right, I'm, I'm going to try to summarize here and kind of roll this up a little bit. Uh, we want to reduce tech debt. We want to reduce patching. We want to reduce exceptions. Plug the holes. Plug the holes. I, okay, good. That, that's perfect. That's a great way to put that. Uh, then on the third-party contract stuff, you had mentioned there were kind of some specifics you wanted to tackle there. We kind of glossed over that one. Um, how do you go about, you know, what what riders are you putting in the contract? What wrappers are you putting around a third-party contract? What, you know, What what is your technique there?
0: Yeah, so uh, with a lot of third-party risk management, we have a lot of old contracts, master service agreements that can't be updated. Yeah, that have been around so, since
1: the dark ages, yeah the
0: idea of a writer is that writers are basically like SLA or statement of works, SOWs, where we can actually update them more frequently than the MSA. And um, we just basically say, we need you to follow security protocols, standards, and we have a right to audit and uh, you know, we want to be notified on uh, any potential impacting our customer data. Right. We don't, we don't want to wait for you three years for you to confirm the incident. Uh, and and uh, again, These are tight, again, putting in as a rider to a master services agreement allows you more flexibility and you don't have to renegotiate.
1: Yeah, I like that. Standard, standard sow over MSA overlay. And I've been on both sides of that one. I've been, I've been the one receiving that um, from, from the financial institution. I've been the one handing it out. Um, And it's, I think it's a fair thing. You know, the, the, the one thing that always uh, ends up being the haggle point for the lawyers for me on that one is that do we notify you of every, like, let's pretend I'm the receiver of the contract in this role. Uh, every time I think there might possibly be an incident, do you really want me picking up the phone and calling you? Or do we want to go with confirmed or reasonably suspected? Like, they always haggle over that language point right there. That seems to be the single biggest haggle point. But but I'm with you on the basics, right? And right to audit, obviously huge, you know. Um, not every company has the clout to pull that off. You can't go to every vendor and say, I demand the right to audit. They'll just tell you to take a hike, right? <laughs> No,
0: no, but it becomes again. These are if you if you ask for the world, you can negotiate down to what you think is important, and that's that's really what it comes down to.
1: That's perfect. Now, um, AI and automation and MLA and all the let's just deploy it, deploy it, deploy it. You already told us about the uh, the, <laughs> the, the the risk sandwich that's been created without one. So, what what's your guidance on how to go forward with that?
0: Wow, that's so I, I you know there's no solution there because you know these companies are bringing AI in internally, training it with their own data. Okay, that's great. Um, but anybody can ask an internal version of ChatGPT or GPT-4 or LLM, whatever you want, um, can ask for the the same question whether he's the CEO or the mailbox, the, the mailroom guy, and get the same data. So now you have AI grabbing all this data, munging it, and now exposing that data to the world to to all the internal employees. So there's got to be some kind of guidance about who's asking the question, and uh, I'll I'll, I'll uh, plug Sunil again. Um, Sunil is working on some type of solution for that. So uh, that's, uh, yeah, I, I saw him at, um, at the, uh, the conference, uh, that I believe it was Black Hat, and we were talking about this. So uh, look look for that type of uh, guardrail. But again, these are the types of guardrails we have to watch out for. If we're, if we're not aware of them, uh, we may be implementing something that is uh, irreversible.
1: No, I get it. I totally get it. And yeah, so neil has been on the show too. He's a friend. He's a great guy. And, uh, I hadn't talked to him about his new, what he's been up to. So now I have to go bug him. Um, that that's awesome. That's awesome. So final question, zero trust, obviously you're a believer. And, and I want to, I want to preface this by saying, uh, there was a digital fight club that I participated in where the actual debate was, is zero trust even a real thing, or is it a load of BS? <laughs> I was the one fighting for it's a real thing. My opponent was fighting for, no, nah, it's just marketing and hype and BS and isn't real. I won the fight. Um, <laughs> pleased to say I won that fight. But but that doesn't, you know, let, let's imagine then I was I was right, okay? Zero trust is real and meaningful, and it's something concrete that we can actually achieve. It's not just marketing hype and, and hubbub. It's not just buzzwords. It's, it's something meaningful and real. If that's all true... Where is it going from here? Is it here to stay? Is it evolving? Is it morphing? Is it still yet to be implemented by most? So it's not going to change much. Like where are we at with the future of Zero Trust?
0: Yeah, so it is here to stay because it's something that we should have been doing all along. And now we're we're basically trying to implement the stuff we should have been doing, right? Um, those those pizza boxes, those sun boxes came with all the controls you needed. Nobody ever, you know, SC Linux is out there right now, right? That's, and everyone turns it off, right? <laughs> or puts it to minimal. So we have to start doing those things, and it's it's difficult. Uh, but that's that's part of it. The other part of it is we have to get into the business process of doing threat modeling on our on our business. It's uh, um, processes. Um, I think you know. I think zero trust as a term is is um, going to get a bad rap. So I I think I said this earlier. If you want budget, you go, you you go upward, you say you want to do zero trust, but if you go to your operations folks saying we want to do zero trust, they'll laugh at you, right? You have to actually tell them what you want done, right? Hey, I need, I need role-based access control in this, in this scope, right? I need entitlements. Uh, I need, I need those hard-coded entitlements in the application to start uh, sharing the entitlement logs with this decision edge. Right. And so you have to
1: start. And and I need micro segmentation around this, you know, this area. And yeah,
0: don't, don't tell your operations folks zero trust because they'll be, they'll be quitting on you.
1: That's, 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 that's actually really wise advice. Zero trust up concrete specifics down. (laughs) Don't call it zero trust. I love it. I love it. Well, John Checo, listen, thank you so much for coming out and sharing all this with us. Uh, I'm not kidding. I'm going to buying a copy of your book this weekend. Uh, thank you for writing it. Thank you for coming on down to the ranch. I'm glad we finally got you out here. I know it's, it's been, uh, in the winds for what, two years now. Yeah, we've yeah, talked about we've getting you on the show. Forth, yeah. Um, <laughs> so thank you very much for coming on down. Thank you so much. Any last thoughts for our listeners? Uh, you know, just, uh, be,
0: be a, a learner, you know, be a, be a perpetual student of everything that's out there. Um, don't, don't, believe everything you see or read and uh you know make a decision for yourself i love it alan thank you for having me man
1: all right i thank you john thank you listeners y'all be good now